Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. I hope you've been enjoying this series on church, Um, these glimpses that we've been taking of God's people, God's kingdom, God's family, God's temple, the body of Christ and Christ's bride. And yet, while we may be able to acknowledge uh, all of these things, I wonder if the real issue for many of us is that we often lose heart. Uh, We can become discouraged, disappointed, even disillusioned with church. Uh, Perhaps it could be your own struggles, or it may be that you've witnessed a prominent leader pulled from the front lines. Sometimes it seems, doesn't it, like the world has the upper hand and the devil the last laugh. And we can begin to wonder if we're investing our time and energy in the right place in church. Can you relate to that? I think that's why this passage, Ephesians chapter 3, is so vitally important for us. You see, why is it that Paul pauses his prayer in chapter 3, verse 1? Why does he stop so suddenly? What is it that that weighs so heavily on him that he cannot get the words out? He can't finish his sentence. He has to start all over again in verse 15 for this reason. Well, he's already said that in verse 1. Why does it take him so long, so many verses, to finally bow the knee and continue his prayer? Can you see that there? He begins, doesn't he? For this reason, I, Paul, but he never actually gets to his prayer until verse 14. For this reason, I bow the knee, and then he prays. Why does it take him so long? I think it's because of the P word in verse 1. Not Paul, but prisoner. Paul loved the Christians in Ephesus. He spent three years there admonishing them with tears, we're told, in Acts chapter 20. When he finally said farewell to them, everyone was crying. They embraced him and kissed him. And they were sorrowful because they knew that they would never see his face again. Because the Holy Spirit had been testifying to Paul that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 21, the disciples at Tyre told Paul, through the Holy Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. Then the prophet Agabus took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. And then Luke and the people of Caesarea also urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
But here he is. Not in a Jerusalem jail, but imprisoned in Rome. It had all come terribly true. Paul was writing to them as a prisoner. The great Apostle Paul, their Apostle, the Apostle to the Gentiles, chained, bound, imprisoned, their frontline man sidelined, taken out. Paul was in prison. With such strong affections between them, the, the Christians at Ephesus and the Apostle Paul, they loved each other. I wonder, how do you think they would hear chapter 3, verse 1, and this news? How do you think they'd feel? I think Paul was afraid for them. He was worried over them. And I think that's why he wrote verses 2 to 12. That's why he, he stops his prayer. He sidelines and interjects for, for, the, for another bit. This interlude, you see, is an antidote. It's preventative medicine to help them swallow the news. So that as verse 13 says, they will not lose heart. You see, that's what he was afraid of. At the very mention of his imprisonment, he fears that they would lose heart, they would be disappointed, they would be discouraged, they would be disillusioned. They'd wonder what was, what was to become of this Christian church, of this faith in Jesus. Because Paul, their Paul, was in prison. And I guess that's why you and I need these words too. Lest we lose heart. Because it's so easy, isn't it? With church to become discouraged, disappointed, and to lose heart. Well, the first thing that Paul wants us to see in these verses is where we are in salvation history. Uh, that, that is, he wants us to zoom out and get the panoramic picture of God's eternal plan from beginning to end. How the mystery, you see, was, was concealed. Once, uh, Paul assumes they already know this, that the mystery was concealed. It wasn't made known to people of other generations. It, 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 for ages past, it was kept hidden in God. But now, now, the mystery's been revealed. It's not concealed anymore. It's revealed. We can see it. It's been made known. Uh, first of all, to the apostles and the prophets by the Spirit, in verse 5. And then it was made known, wasn't it, uh, to Paul himself by revelation in verse 3. And now we too can join the Ephesians in verse 4. And we too can perceive, we too can read and understand this mystery of God. What is this mystery? It's verse 6. That through the gospel... The Gentiles, that is every nation, tribe and tongue, are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body, sharers together, partakers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. 
Can you remember where you were at a big moment in history? Perhaps you're old enough to remember VE Day. Any old enough to remember that? When World War II ended, 1945, I wasn't there. Maybe you can remember when man, Neil Armstrong, walked on the moon, 1969, watching the black and white TV. Or perhaps you were there when the internet was first invented, 1983, or when the Berlin Wall fell, 1989. Or perhaps you can remember where you were standing when you got the news that Princess Diana had died, 1997. Or when the Twin Towers fell, 2001. Or when the Queen died, or when COVID hit. Can you remember where you were? You remember those great turning points in history? Well, Paul was there at the great turning point in salvation history when the mystery was revealed. AD 33. No longer just Jews, not primarily Jews anymore, but specifically and intentionally Gentiles as well. So don't lose heart, Paul's saying. Don't lose heart over my suffering. I'm in prison, yes. But see where you are in salvation history. A new era has begun. A new day has dawned. Don't lose sight of that. And then secondly, grasp the grace of God in gospel ministry. Grasp the grace of gospel ministry. And that is that Paul now wants us to zoom in and get a close-up portrait of Paul. You see, of all the people God could have chosen, Paul was the most unlikely candidate, the most surprising choice. He hated Jesus, he hated Christians, and he hated the church. But he says in verse 7 that of this gospel, that is, this gospel to Jews and Gentiles, Paul was the, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, wasn't he? Born of the tribe of Benjamin. Raised in, he was fully, fully Jewish, wasn't he? But of this gospel of Jews and Gentiles, Paul, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. What a grace. What an undeserved kindness. This was given to him, he says, by the working of God's power. To me, he says, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul used to go from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believed. When the martyr Stephen was stoned and his blood was shed... Paul, then Saul, stood giving his approval. He was so obsessed with persecuting Christians that he hunted them. He hunted them down in foreign cities. In his own words, he says, he was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. It really was through a powerful work of God that Saul became Paul. So don't lose heart 
over my imprisonment, he says. Grasp the grace of God in gospel ministry. What a wonder. What a powerful transformation. What an undeserved kindness. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the very faith he once tried to destroy. Can you believe it? Grasp the grace of God in gospel ministry. Paul's job now is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The inexhaustible treasures. The infinite wealth of Jesus. Paul's job now is to bring to light, not just for the Jews, but for everyone. uh, To make plain what is this mystery that they're included They're no longer in the dark. He wants to bring it to light. What a wonder is the grace of gospel ministry. And then thirdly and finally, and I think this is where we really want to land this morning, uh, Paul wants us to understand the purpose of church. That is, not just to uh, zoom out and get the panoramic picture, not just to zoom in and get the portrait of Paul, but now to look behind the curtain into the heavenly realms. If I can put it this way, did you know that church exists to demonstrate to demons the diversity of divine wisdom? Church exists to demonstrate to demons the diversity of divine wisdom to the praise of his glorious grace. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Have a look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now, in this age, be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow. God's great purpose in keeping this mystery secret for so long and then revealing it to the apostles and prophets and to Paul and to us through reading, God's great purpose in taking a man like Saul and converting him thoroughly into Paul and making him a minister and a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles to bring to light to everyone. God's great purpose in that. God's great purpose in all of verses 2 to 9, the mystery and the ministry, is to put God's multifaceted wisdom on display like a diamond in a jewellery store. For the whole world to see. No, not just for the whole world. It's more cosmic than that, isn't it? God's purpose for the church is for the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms to see. Now, Paul's not talking here about political leaders, rulers and authorities. It is used that way in the New Testament, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Nor is Paul talking here about angels in general. In Ephesians, listen to how Paul defines rulers and authorities. Chapter 6, verse 11. You might want to flick there, just over the page. Chapter 6, verse 11. Paul says to Christians, we should put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
he says, for we are not wrestling, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. So they're not flesh and blood. He puts them in line with, he says, against the cosmic powers of, uh, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, he defines who they are. One commentator said, when he compares chapter 3 with chapter 6, he says, there can be little doubt that Paul considers these figures to be thoroughly evil, spiritual beings who exercise power over the unbelieving world. You see, this is Paul's way in Ephesians of talking about what the Gospels define as unclean or evil spirits. Now, C.S. Lewis uh, is helpful at this point. He cautions us as Christians. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, he says, are equally pleased with both errors and they hail both the materialist who doesn't believe and the magician who's very interested with the same delight. That's helpful, isn't it? In other words, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that we shouldn't fear them and we shouldn't be fascinated with them. But we do both. We disbelieve in them because in Western culture we trivialise them by relegating to them to the realms of fiction and fantasy. The underlying message is often that all this is not real. And at the same time, we're excessively interested in them, aren't we, as well? Because, I mean, just consider the number of movies and films and TV shows that have this kind of theme. Well, if it was me, I would take them on an AO tour, angels only, of God's creation, his physical creation, David Attenborough style. Let them be wowed by the wonders of God's wisdom in creation. Take them whale watching. Fly them to the moon and back. Look down an electron microscope. But God's plan from eternity past to show off his wisdom is not just through the creation, but actually primarily in the heavenly realms through his new creation. You see, the church is the one thing above all else that enables angels to see the very wisdom and power of God on display. Paul is saying that when the church gathers together as Jews and Gentiles, multiracial, multi-ethnic, under one Lord Jesus Christ, it is a showcase of God's infinite wisdom in the spiritual realms. It's like a prism that captures the light and throws the full spectrum of divine wisdom on display in all of its colour, in all of its beauty. You see, Ephesians 3 verse 10 is for church what the book of Job is for suffering. Because the book of Job takes us behind the curtain into the heavenly realms. 
And Ephesians 3.10 does the same. Not with suffering, but with church. It shows us that there are deeper reasons, other realms, other dimensions to be considered. Have you ever wondered why Sunday morning is so hard? Just getting to church. Is it because we are tired from the week and the late night movie on Saturday? Well, it may be part of it. Is it because the kids and you are cranky because you had broken sleep? Well, it might be part of it too. But can I suggest another reason? As Shakespeare's Hamlet said, there are more things on heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophies. There is more than meets the eye in our public gatherings. There is such thing as a spiritual battle. And I don't mean to be weird or spooky. I mean to be realistic. Our coming together as one people, in prayer, in praise, in proclamation of the gospel, by one spirit under one Lord Jesus Christ, is not a small thing. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, For too long we have been stopping at the personal blessings. That's where we're mostly focused, isn't it, as Christians? What What can we get out of it? But he says, for far too long we've we've been stopping at the personal blessings and spending our time feeling our own spiritual pulse. When our mission is not just to men and women, but for angels. They too are to be enlightened by the church. Something is happening through the church which we cannot see. You see, Paul's already told us in chapter 2, verse 6, that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, past tense. He has done it. We are spiritually seated with him, with Christ. In order that, why did he do that? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. A Jew becomes a Christian, straight to the throne room. A Gentile becomes a Christian, straight to the throne room. Together they are trophies of grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. Chapter 1, all over again. Look, he says, at my grace, wonder at my wisdom. Who would have thought that a Jew dying on a cross, shedding his blood, giving his life, would bring together people from every nation, tribe and tongue under one reigning Lord Jesus Christ forever. The church shows that the death of Jesus really has broken down the walls of hostility. The church, you see, is God's declaration to the unseen enemies of the beauty and majesty and wonder of God's eternal plan, that God really is working everything in conformity with the purpose of his will to bring everything in heaven and on earth under one head, Jesus Christ. 
the world will look on and laugh. But dark angels shut their mouths. I remember hearing a pastor once um, tell of his multicultural church in Western Sydney. I was at a conference, he was speaking at one of their electives. You go along to these things and you think, oh, you know, you know, just let's get through this. But it was actually really good. He was telling about his church, uh, which was very, very, very multicultural. People from all over the globe. People, he said, whose home countries were at war with each other, worshipping Jesus together. Eating with one another. Loving and forgiving one another. Serving together in the mission of Jesus. He said there are three types of multicultural churches. The first type is the separate multicultural church. 8am Chinese service, 10am white Anglo family service, 3pm Samoan service and 5pm Korean service. It's not really multicultural, is it? Then there's the accidental multicultural church, where it just so happens that the church exists in a community which has a diverse ethnic reality. And it just so happens that they turn up in the same building at the same time, but there's a white ceiling. All of the leaders are Anglo-Saxon. And then he said, there's another type of multicultural church, and that is an intentional, purposeful, multicultural church where people from all nations, tribe and tongue gather together in worship of Jesus and their leadership reflects that. Isn't that beautiful? Local church, global mission, cosmic display. Jesus is not a local deity. He belongs to the world. No, he doesn't. The world belongs to him. And we cannot preach the gospel without crossing cultures and borders and languages and bringing all sorts of people together under one Jesus. That is his purpose, his mission. That's why the church exists. That's what brings glory to Jesus. And the very existence of this new multiracial community in which Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in unity in one body is the manifestation of God's rich, diverse and wonderful display of wisdom. So, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Because Paul's prison was not a punishment. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's prison was not a punishment. Nor was Paul's prison a setback. There are no setbacks in God's sovereignty. In uh, Colin Buchanan's words, God never says, oops. Nor was Paul's prison a disappointment. No. No. 
It was God's appointment. Paul's prison was part of God's plan. Because God has ordained for suffering to be one of the ways he advances the gospel. Do you remember Jesus? God used what they intended for evil for the saving of many people. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. That's what Paul says. Because it is your glory. Your glory. God is using these chains, he's saying, even now. And God will turn things around like only he can do so that these prison walls will echo the gospel even in 2023. See where you are in salvation history. Zoom out and get the panoramic of God's eternal plan. Grasp the grace of gospel ministry Zoom in and get a close-up portrait of Paul and understand the purpose of the church. Take a look behind the curtain into the heavenly realms. It will both raise and temper your expectations of church and it will help you make sense of reality. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that now you've revealed the mystery And through reading, we too can perceive that together this morning. We thank you, Lord. We pray, please, that you would do. Please use us here at the point to be a demonstration of your manifold wisdom. For the glory of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.